Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Turfcrest Epistemology. I'm Travis Shaddix. I hope you're doing well. It has been raining here in Lexington, Kentucky for about two days. It's been a very um, mild fall and it decided to start drizzling and raining. So any of the winter farmers are probably getting very happy at the moment. We've needed a little bit of rain here, so we've, we're getting it slow and steady. Almost not even a rain, it's more like a slow drizzle. Gray and cold. And it's getting colder. It is... It's going to be almost, almost freezing by the end of the day. It's getting colder throughout the day today, I believe. Where's my weather app? Yeah, so it, it's 47 here, Fahrenheit, obviously. And it, by the end of the day, it ends, oh, it's not that bad. By the end of the day, it gets to 42. So it's going down throughout the, the day. So we got a front coming through. And then it's quite cold. Look, the, um, whatever it was a couple days ago, we talked about a paper with cold hardiness and the importance of being aware of the drop in temperatures. And we're dropping in temperature about 20 or 30. Actually, I think it's 30 degrees. It was 70 something or 60 something a couple days ago. And it's going to drop below freezing um, to about 25 or 6 or something like that in the next day or two. That, that's a significant drop. But we have to remember, you still have to get down quite a bit lower than 25 or 26 Fahrenheit to really cause problems. So it's not, although it is a drastic drop, and it's a, the drop is quite, quite large. It's still not down. I mean, you got to get down. Well, I think, I forget what that paper said. I think it was negative 12 celsius i think it was so you still got to get down there kind of low before you really start have to worry about winter kill and things like that but it's this sort of fluctuation during like right before the turf grass has really hardened off much that can really cause problems but it's still got it don't forget it's still got to get down low enough to really cause problems so i wouldn't expect this drop to cause any issues unless you know it got down and you know to the teens or something like that so that's what's going on here. I spent all weekend um, not really tearing out, but putting in a, what was it, 1,200 square foot flower bed. I have an area of my lawn that is notoriously challenging to grow grass on. It sits up right against the house on the, what would that be, the west side of the house. And it's tucked up sort of in the, well, it's hard to explain, but it's shaded a lot. So that turf grass in that location is not the right plant for that place. So I finally got all my deck and stuff finished, or at least mostly finished. And so I was able to put some landscape fabric down. I don't have to mow it as much, and there wasn't much grass there anyway, so I'm going to put some plants there in the spring. I have another 14 yards of mulch i got to move down the hill. My, my property is severely sloped. But at least the front part of my property is up the hill. And so every time I take something to my backyard, it's always downhill, which is nice, as opposed to the opposite. But 14 yards is no fun to move, but it's mulch. It's not that heavy. I've done it before, so i got to do that this week. I have some friends and guests coming over this next weekend for an early Thanksgiving. My wife's colleagues are going back home to Brazil, and so they wanted to do a Thanksgiving here and they won't be able to because they're leaving. So we're going to do one early for them. 
So my goal is to put 14 yards of mulch in my driveway and have it gone before Saturday morning. <laughs> we'll see if I can do that. It takes me about two days to move 14 yards of mulch but with a wheelbarrow. Just just me. So I think I can do it. As long as, it's not supposed to rain anymore. So as long as it doesn't rain and it's sunny, I don't mind the cold weather. But um, we'll see if I can get that done this week. But anyway, that's what's going on here. Today is going to be a, a little bit longer of an episode, I believe. At least that's what it's looking like because I have something I want to go over with before we go over the paper. I was reading the news and I came across a video and in in an article on CNN. And um, I wanted to go over to kind of give my opinion on it. This is just my opinion. I'm not going to back it up with papers. Although I suppose I can and maybe I will in the future. But let's get into it because I got a feeling that it's going to be, we're going to be a, a minute or two on today's show. So let me get into this um, video. And by the way, thanks for showing up, everybody. You got Lush and Looney and Brady and Lawn Guy 100 and Gray and um, all sorts of people in here today. So um, Looney's got some snow apparently where he's at. I don't know if you're in the western part of the U.S. I know Colorado got some snow yesterday. Um, <laughs> what is that Looney is hopefully that's a joke question Looney now now that snow has fallen is time for a dormant is it time for a dormant fert application with mill organite or should I wait until the ground is completely frozen please for the love of God I hope that's sarcasm why, what, what, was there somebody doing that or was, did you, did I show something on that? I don't remember where that, why that comments there, but yeah, <laughs> Dor dormant applications of nutrients are, um, unwise. It's unwise. There's very few, like always in, in turf grass management or agricultural management, but I'm going to, I'm going to spit out one right now. It is always unwise, inefficient, whatever the word you want to use, to put down any nutrient at a time when the turf grass or any other plant has essentially zero chance of taking it up. So, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Going to give me a heart attack on here, Lush. I mean, I'm try, trying to, uh, I, 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 uh, trying to help people out and uh, as long as it's sarcastic i'm all good with humor and sarcasm i just i don't i wasn't sure about that so um oh they're a joke growing the grasses my little apps are a joke so i'm sorry i'm, I'm new to the community <laughs> if you want to call it that youtube community lawn care whatever you want to call it i'm actually curious why it's a joke why, why is milo i maybe have to get one of you guys on here and explain to me what's going on with milo being a joke um i would say it's useful for phosphorus applications you know if you have a phosphorus deficiency that would be one i'd want to consider applying them any natural organic that has phosphorus in it but outside of a phosphorus deficiency it would be challenging for me to find a reason to to use it um oh someone posted a can you can you post looney says someone posted a youtube video on doing a fall myelorganite application well, if you feel comfortable, post it in the chat. I'll take a look at it when I hang up. 
I don't want to look at it now on the YouTube on live. I'm, I might say something I don't want to say or I'll regret. Um, yeah. But I mean, if you feel comfortable or send to my email or something, I wouldn't mind looking at it. Um, okay. So let me, let me, there's a small, small three or four minute video here. I'm just going to play it and then I'm going to read the article to you guys and kind of give my input. Um, again, this is just my opinion. Take it for what it's worth. Um, it doesn't mean it's right or wrong, but, um, and then we'll get into the article in a minute. <clears throat> okay. So if you go to, I believe if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, if you go to, um, why is this thing messed up here? Okay. If you go to, uh, CNN right now, you can pull this up. There's an article called abandoned golf courses are being reclaimed by nature. <clears throat> okay. The video and the article are slightly different. Not exactly, but slightly. Um, so I'm going to watch the video here. I'm going to, you know, hopefully you guys can hear it when I'm playing it and I'm going to pause it and kind of walk through it. And then we're going to read the article a little bit. And I'm going to give you my two cents on what, what I, the environment ecosystem that I live in and, um, how it relates to this article. You see there's these large flowers down there. There's some white ones, some pink ones. That's a native hibiscus. Okay, so what we're looking at is a, an aerial view of, an, of a golf course that has been abandoned. And there's a gentleman speaking from, I forget his name, Mike Johnson, I believe it is, talking about uh, the various plants on the golf course that has been, is in the process of being reclaimed or uh, what do you call it, renaturalized. It's in the mallow family, and the wetland ones, they call them marshmallows. Get it? Marshmallows. Yeah. If, if there's one humor that drives me insane, it's the pun. It, it's so elementary and juvenile. It's just, unless you're in sixth grade, it's like, my, I'll read stuff about my kids all day long, but as adults, I'm not, not sure if that's where you want to go. My name is Mike Johnson. I'm the Chief of Conservation for Summit Metro Parks. We are at the Valley View area of Cascade Valley Metro Park. Today, you would never know that this was ever a golf course. The okay, so this is in Ohio. I believe this is in Akron, Ohio, is what the beginning of it said. Um, just to kind of set the stage, what, what we're looking at, if you're not uh, watching it and you're listening, and they're in Akron, Ohio. Vegetation that you see behind me, 90% of it is native, whereas when this was a golf course, 90% of it was non-native and invasive. Okay, so this whole native thing is um, whenever somebody is discussing ecosystems and environments and what plants should and shouldn't be there and all these other um, things, and they start using this word native native species and native this and native that it's it's a i don't know if it's it's not really a red flag but it's definitely um an alarm that you're talking to a bser okay because native there, there's nothing particularly unique about a native plant or the ecosystem requiring only its native plants okay there's a difference between native plants and invasive plants so whenever someone says, oh, we need native plants, they don't really understand what they're saying usually because native to what? Native to the ecosystem. Okay, native to what? For, for what? It's native to Colorado. Okay, well, native to what part of Colorado? 
Southern Colorado is very different than Northern Colorado. It's native to Northern Colorado. Okay, what part? Eastern Colorado or Western Colorado? Because those two ecosystems are completely different too. So you can kind of keep playing that infinite regress game with these goofballs who think native plants are the solution to all of our, all of our problems. Okay, there's many, many plants that are perfectly fine and suitable and, and the right plant for that place that are not necessarily native. That's different from invasive. Okay, an invasive plant is by the executive order in 1999, I guess it was Clinton who signed that, that defined what an invasive plant is, which is a non-native plant to that ecosystem, a plant that is not native to that ecosystem. And that's, this is key here and causes or likely causes harm to the environment, to, uh, humans or, um, to the, to the economy. Okay. So if you want to say 90% of the plants on the golf course were invasive were non-native, that's okay. I mean, that's Bermuda grass is native to Africa, I believe. Okay. So that checks box number one, but box number two, it has to cause or likely cause harm to the economy, to the environment or to humans. So let's start with number one to the economy. I agree. Golf does cause economic harm when you remove a golf course from a community. <laughs> okay. When a golf course is there in almost every situation, it's going to increase the economic viability of that, of that area. So when it's when the when the golf course is removed is when you see economic depression in that particular location when it comes whether it's from restaurants or hotels or just rounds being played whatever it is so so i think we can agree hopefully that the golf course does not check the economic harm box so let's skip to humans does it cause or likely cause harm to humans now when you're talking about invasive plants they're talking about plants that have um parts of the plant that are either poisonous or harmful or you know a tree that grows so fast it falls over and hurts somebody that's invasive and kills somebody talking about the plant itself causing harm to a human i don't remember ever seeing someone die as a result of turf grass okay or getting sick as a result of turf grass all right so i'm sure maybe someone can pull up an article and show me where i'm wrong here but but turf grass, as far as I know, and I could be wrong, has never harmed a human being directly. Okay. So the only other thing re remaining is the environmental harm. So it does, it, it, it's non-native. We'll give you that. It, it, but it, does, it doesn't check the economic box. It doesn't check the human harm box. But, but does it check the environmental harm box? Any plant that is not managed correctly has the potential to cause environmental harm. It doesn't matter what plant it is. It could be carrots, onions, turf, trees, bushes, whatever the case is, or um, woody ornamentals. Any plant that is not properly managed has the potential for to cause or likely cause environmental harm. So any plant that is in a location that is it's not native to that ecosystem and is not properly managed could be considered an invasive species. So the there is a question mark there for turf grass that is not properly managed. For turf grasses that are properly managed, clearly 
there is extremely low risk of environmental harm. And then we can go through dozens and dozens and dozens of papers from both turfgrass prof- uh, scientists and non-turfgrass scientists who have, and we will, we have plenty of time here, okay? We, we will go over these papers that show that properly managed turf grass has essentially negligible impact on the environment. And in many cases, benefits the, in, the environment or the ecosystem, depending on where it is. Okay, it's when the turf is not properly managed. It is um, managed with disregard to best management practices. There, there's cases where I know of where there are best management practices in the location with manuals, the whole nine yards, where we have designated rates of nitrogen, for example, where the turf grass is not managed within those rates. There are, there are nitrogen, there is nitrogen being applied to these turf grasses well in excess of the maximum uh, limit on BMPs. It's in those cases where the turf grass could cause, or at least potentially cause, environmental harm. But that's not a turf grass problem. That's a people problem. Okay? And that's why we have BMPs. That's why we, we have a lot of uh, superintendents that follow BMPs and spend in associations that spend an enormous amount of resources developing best management practices and promoting best management practices. Okay? So to say 90% of the turf grass on this golf course um, was invasive. Um, I don't know that to be true because I don't know how it was managed. We clearly, it doesn't cause economic harm. Clearly it doesn't cause human harm. Did it cause potential environmental harm? I don't know, but I like it when people set out, I like it in a bad way. When people set out to have a video on CNN and, and start off with um, information that is not supported by evidence. They like to scare people, right? Oh, it's invasive. 90% of the stuff is invasive. Okay, well, I don't know if that's true. According to the definition, it's possibly true, but it's possibly not true. If this golf course was managed by a person who, who followed best management practices, who was a minimalist, it's possible that the removal of this golf course caused, caused more environmental harm than the, than the maintenance of it. Okay, so to simply just make broad statements like it's 90% invasive is not, um, in in my view, completely accurate. Let's continue. This park is right within the city of Akron limits. And when we started the acquisition, we realized how important it was to connect the other two parks to this area. It allowed us to knit together 1,800 acres. That is something that's very difficult to do in a county where everything is beginning to be built out. The first choice we had to make is, do we allow it to restore on its own, just kind of let it go, or do we take a more active role in that process? So I live on a, on a, on a golf course um, that was abandoned uh, about five years ago. Actually, the, the month I bought this house, <laughs> it was open. Uh, I guess, well, I guess the, the, the pool had just been closed. So, and then we bought it in March and we moved in in June. So by the time we moved in, it was abandoned. It had been closed. And uh, it's, it's hard to explain, but this, the, the two nine holes are split into two different HOAs. And the HOA owns the golf course. We bought the, the golf course. The HOA bought the golf course from whoever owned it. I don't remember how it worked out. 
But anyway, we own the golf course. And nine holes, the nine holes that I don't live on, ironically, they, when I was at, when I was at university, they came to me and said, Hey, we're looking at, you know, several acres. There's, I think there was 40 acres and 20, 21 or 22 acres was in turf grass. We're looking at this huge area and we don't know what to do with it. We know we don't want to just let it sit and be abandoned. And that's the same thing they're asking that. Um, they have this opportunity, they have this property and we just like, do, should we just let it go native and reclaim itself or should we take a more active role? And that's the exact same question that homeowners, which I was a part of, and I happened to also be the person at the university who they were asking. They didn't know that. They didn't know I lived there when they called me. Um, they were saying, well, what do we do? And I told them, well, I have a vested interest in this too. I have a house on it. And I can tell you if we don't do anything to it, the chances are good. And this was, I, I have to pull the report. I can't remember off the top of my head now, but the chances are good that the the home values will decline by as much as 12%, if not even more. I think the average is 12% reduction at the time that they came to me. I said, so if it were me, which kind of is, I'm in the HOA, I would take a more active role. I would I'd be uh, proactive on this situation and, and use this as an opportunity to turn what what is potentially a sort of a, a negative, a golf course closing into a positive, And that is you have an opportunity of, a, I think, well, I forget the acreage, 30 or 40 acres to create whatever it is we want to create open green space or playgrounds for our kids from the, you know, who, who with the homeowners or whatever it is, you know, fishing opportunity, whatever the case is that you all want to do, let's work it out and figure it out. So we played an active role and I'm going to go through that a little bit more, but it was decided that let's play an active role. And they, we ended up going in and they said, well, what are we going to do with all this? We had bent grass uh, fairways. They said, what are we going to do with all this bent grass, all these bent grass fairways? And I said, well, if, if it were me, <laughs> what I would do is I would go in and I would remove it all chemically. I would chemically remove it all and then plant in a less um, needy turf, a, a turf grass that is, has less maintenance requirements, like a tall fescue for Kentucky. We can put in a turf type tall fescue that requires very little water, requires very, very little uh, nutrition, you know, in terms of applications of fertilizers or anything like that. And um, it, it won't sort of look grown out of a wild and out of control. And so that's what they did. We went in and we removed all the, all the, all the bent grass with two or three sequential applications of, at the time it was uh, non-selective. And I went in myself on a tractor and I seeded, a, uh, I uh, slit seeded 21 acres of tall, turf type tall fescue. And uh, the whole time, the homeowners were 100% on board. They were like, yeah, this is great. Da, da, da. And now that it's grown in, this has been three years ago, four years ago, it is fantastic. People love it out there. Their dogs are out there all the time. We were walking out there all the time. It, it, is, it is a great area to go and, and have recreation. Um, but we took an active role in it. Okay. We didn't just let and sit it go wild and which is not something I'd recommend it. And I mean, unless your HOA wants a wild feeling to it, they actually, I feel in many cases, you make an argument that the community that I'm in now is of greater value because of what we've done. And it didn't cost that much money. Let's continue. And because this was a golf course, we decided it was necessary to take a more active role. We had to undo the golf course before we could restore the landscape. The next step was to establish a native cover of vegetation. And rather than plant trees, we decided to plant nuts. 
And over the course of a fall, our volunteers brought us a quarter million nuts. And over the course of two days, 600 volunteers showed up to plant 120,000 of them. This is the Cuyahoga River, and we're looking out over a vast restored floodplain. When we acquired the property, the banks of the river were steep. They'd been channelized. Uh, the golf course, they wanted to keep the water out. We wanted to bring the water back into the landscape. The Cuyahoga River is significant. This is the river that burned. It actually burned several times throughout history because it was so polluted from industrial dumping. There okay, I don't know if that's true. What he's implying is, I like to actually someone look this up. I haven't taken the time to do it. Um, whether it was polluted or not, who, uh, I believe that. But to say he's clearly implying that the, the lake or the river was, was set on fire because it was so polluted. Now, that is an extraordinary claim. Okay. To say that the, the river was polluted, <laughs> and they're showing tires on the screen and all sorts of stuff down the river. I, I have confidence that that's, that's probably true. I know the rivers exist. I know that pollution in rivers has happened over the years. Things like the Love Canal have happened, where clearly um, it, whoever it was decided that they could just dump stuff in the water. These, there's many, many examples of that. But to have a river that he's clearly implying be set on fire because it was polluted is not an ordinary claim. So when you hear things like this, it, it's the it's the it's the um, Carl Sagan analogy of I got a I got a dragon in my garage. Well, you can make you can say I have a garage. I don't need evidence to support the fact that you have a garage or my my conviction that you have. A, I know garages exist, but when you say you have a dragon in your garage. That is an extraordinary claim, okay? So when you read stuff like this, or you see stuff like this, and you see pictures of fire and rivers, whatever, it's not that it's not true. It's just that's an extraordinary claim that requires extraordinary evidence for me to be convinced that it's true. So don't just immediately believe that this what he's saying is accurate. It might be, but I'd want a little bit more information before I actually believe the, the river was set on fire because it was polluted, okay? There was a time in recent memory where the stretch of river that we have here in Valley View supported almost no fish or aquatic wildlife. It was about as dead as a river can be. So this is a type of fish called a darter, and darters are sort of the pinnacle of water quality indicators in fisheries biology. Uh, again, another species that its presence here is indicative of clean water, and what's good for fish is ultimately good for people too. One of the biggest challenges of any park district is preserving our natural resources and also at the same time letting people come in and enjoy them. What we knew we needed to do was one more phase where we could bring access to the river for the public. So phase two is under construction now. These parks and the wetlands and the streams filter pollutants from the water that we eventually drink. They clean the air. They provide habitat for wildlife, including a large array of endangered species we have here in Summit County. They're also important for people. These are places for people to come and relax, to de-stress. They're important for recreation and connecting with nature, for especially young people to connect with nature and inspire them to become the next generation of land stewards. Okay, let's rewind this just for a second, and I'm gonna do one thing here real quick. Listen to what I'm gonna do, watch. Insert the word golf course 
in front of these these things. Sure, One second. Biology. Right here. Uh, again, another species that its presence here is indicative of clean and also at the same time letting people come in and enjoy them. Okay. What we knew we needed to do was filter pollutants okay, right to bring access to the river for the public. So phase two is under construction now. Okay, golf courses. These parks and the wetlands and the stream. So instead of parks and wetlands parks, just say golf courses because golf courses have wetlands and streams. Go ahead. Filter pollutants from the water that golf, we eventually golf courses are, are documented to do that. Doc they provide golf courses are, have been documented to clean the air. Doc golf courses have been documented to contain habitat or possess habitat for endangered species. For wildlife, including a large array of endangered species okay. we have here in Summit County. They're also important for people. Golf courses are almost also important for people, I agree. These are places for people to come and relax. Uh, well, I don't know about that, <laughs> but golf courses are clearly a place where people can go and relax. Stress. I don't know about de-stress. Sometimes you get a little stressed out on golf courses, but clearly it fits that. They're kind. important for recreation. Golf courses are important for recreation. And connecting with nature. Golf courses are important for connecting with nature. Very few, uh, there are some of the, some of the most, uh, um, active wildlife enthusiasts are golf course superintendents and, and uh, people in our, our industry taking photos of wildlife taking you know they're the active fishers and hunters and you know and, and we're outside in nature every day okay so if you just insert the word golf course into this whole um you know, issue or the, what he's talking about he, you know it it fits it fits his description as well as this park does for especially young people to connect with nature and i agree golf courses do the same thing inspire them to become the next generation of land stewards. yes so we we we're on the same page there now he's saying that it's just parks i'm being facetious here and i'm saying that it's parks and golf being outside in nature is good whether it's in parks and golf or parks and nature and golf and nature however it is but I just wanted to point this out that there is there is clear evidence that mismanaged turf grass and golf courses and whatever lawn care lawns have a potential environmental impact. Question: There's very little question about that. But properly managed, properly maintained turf grass has very little impact and has um, all these benefits that he's talking about in in these parks as well. I, I think where. Um, let me just go back to me. I, th I think where I think I, I lie on this issue is um, I, I think some golf golf facilities have missed the mark a little bit in this regard is that this is the opinion of many people in your community that golf courses are evil and da 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 and that nature and na native habitat is the way to go. This is their opinion. And they're not being included in your golf course. They're not allowed. They're not in. Now, maybe they can be a member. That's, you know, I'm sure you wouldn't exclude them, but they're not members of your golf course. They're not going in there and playing golf. They don't know what it is. They don't know about how it's managed and all the benefits and so forth. Um, I will say that on my facility, on my golf course, on the ones that's, that is abandoned, it is, I, I, I <laughs> so I'm, I'm still, I don't want to get in hot water here or anything, but I love it. There's no golfers at all. On, there's, there's no golf being played. And there are so many people out on the golf course every day. The, the, the cart path is maintained with our HOA fees. So we have an, a, a very nice place to ride our bikes and walk and play in the, um, the fairways. It is, um, 
you see people out with lacrosse um, goalies, uh, goals on the fields. They have their dogs out there. They're playing frisbee all over the place. And we do mow it. Okay, the fairies are mowed. I don't know. I'm going to get it wrong, but I, I want to say it's five or six times a year. We do mow it. So it's not every week. It's, you know, it's once a month or once every three or four weeks during the active growing season. So it is fairly, you know, uh, groomed, but it's not heavily intensely uh, maintained at all. There's there's no fertilizer going on. There's no irrigation going on. Um, the only thing really we do is is mow it. <clears throat> and I love it. I mean, my kids, we're on we're on bikes on those, that golf course. Well, now it's getting cold and it's raining, but all, almost every weekend we're riding our bikes on that golf course because we can go from one side of town almost to the entire other side of town on the southeast side of Lexington and never leave the golf course. We don't have to get on the roads. And because we're members of the HOA or whatever, we can do that. It's no, no problem. So I, I enjoy that. Um, <clears throat> I just, but having said all that, I just want to say that when you see these, uh, whatever, uh, start saying these things on videos, it's, it's easy to be convinced. Well, they have nice music behind and you hear birds chirping in the background. This guy must know what he's talking about. He's in nature. I don't have any problem with, with any of his nature stuff. That's fine. No, no problem. There's a place for that. But to simply say golf courses are in, have 90% invasive species and, and, you know, and now the way it is now we have 90% native species and that's better for us that you can't just uniformly say that across all, all conditions and all situations. Okay. Because I can make a very strong case that the removal of this golf course resulted in an economic depression in that area. Okay. And that the presence of that golf course did not have an environmental impact on, uh, in anything negligible beyond background levels. Anyway, if it was properly managed, like, I don't know that particular golf course. I don't know who managed it and how they did it, but if it's properly managed, the, the, the impact is negligible. And in some cases you'll see, the influx, the inflow of nutrients on the up, say the inflow side of the course is much higher than the, the efflux or the movement of nutrients exiting the golf course. In some cases, it's the opposite. Some cases you see it's lower and it's higher going out, but in some cases you see it's higher coming in than it is going out, meaning that the, the golf course is acting as a, pol a filter, a pollutant filter. If it's properly managed and maintained, if you have the proper buffer zones and the riparian zones and the wetlands and you have the proper, you know, wildlife habitat and so forth, pollinator habitat, all these things. And that's the way, that's the way we're moving. That's the way BMPs uh, are moving. And, and uh, it's only in cases where we ignore those BMPs. Um, well, I shouldn't say only, but it's, it's primarily in cases where we ignore those BMPs, in my opinion, that we see uh, potential environmental harm. Okay. Well, let me read through this just briefly because I like I love when I see stuff like this. I mean, it's it just gets me every time. This is the article itself. Now remember, the article is titled <clears throat> "Abandoned Golf Courses Are Being Reclaimed by Nature." Golf courses on CNN. Golf courses, despite occupying large green spaces, are not necessarily good for the environment. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you could say the same thing about any plant. You could say you could say uh, onion fields. Uh, despite occupying large amounts of space, are not necessarily good for the environment, which is true if they're not properly managed. Onions are not native to the United States. Carrots are not native to the United States. Cherry tomatoes are not native to the United States. Eggplants not native to the United States. And you see the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of acres of these of these crops being grown, and they're but they're they're not particularly an issue as long as they're properly managed. Okay, 
Land is often cleared to make way for a fairway maintaining the pristine turf often requires a lot of water, regular mowing, and the spraying of fertilizers and pesticides, none of which is good for biodiversity. I mean, you can't read that without smiling. I mean, to, to know that the author who wrote this took the time <laughs> to write something so, you know, obviously you know what side they're on when you read the first paragraph. And there's no, there's no evidence that they're, that they're providing. I mean, clearly turf grass requires water. Um, but, you know, other plants require water too. I mean, plants require water, just as simple as that. So... Anyway, the point, the point I'm saying is that they start off like this, you know, I don't know if they do that because they're trying to grasp the attention of the audience they're they're pandering to or whatever. But, um, when I read it, I'm like, oh, I'm going to read the rest of this because this guy's clearly, um, indoctrinated into one side in the, in the U S the number of golf course closures outweighs new opening. This is an NGF article. That is true. Golf course closures are outweighing new openings every year since 2006. Some are questioning how. We should use these huge spaces and asking whether instead of golf, nature should be left to run its course. Now, what I was going to say earlier uh, failed to do is that I do think golf has missed a point here in that um, golf is changing. You have to change in order to, in order to stay in business. You can't just build your wall up and charge half a million dollars for, you know, entry fee or whatever the numbers are. These crazy numbers down in Florida, 100,000, whatever the numbers are and keep everybody out. Okay, and then expect them not to have some sort of impact on you whenever whenever they get voted in to to these these positions of authority and elected officials. So I I think what I'm saying is is that <clears throat> the inclusion of these of our community into these golf courses, there must be some way that we can use the golf course for its intended purpose. The 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 and I guess you could say the intended purpose purpose is golf. Um, but also include our community in some way that uh, is not so exclusive. Like say, um, you know, you have, I'm not saying you, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying you just have a wedding there. That, that happens all the time. I'm what I'm talking about is having some sort of <clears throat> open community event, like an open Easter egg hunt, egg hunt. So that people can come in who are not members of the community and enjoy the open land occasionally. So they can see, Hey, this is, this is actually a really nice area and they're doing really good things here. So that the people who don't see the course every day, but are voters can come in and see what exactly it is that you do and include them in, into what it is, you know, the, the, the area, this, it, it, something along those lines, I think would need to be done because I can see if the, in my case, if the golf course was opened, I don't think I would enjoy it near as much. My, my, my community it's that it, the fact, the reality is that it's not open and, and our homeowners can enjoy the area. I bet if you put one of those, I don't know what you call it, a pedometer, whatever thing that marks like how many people walk by. I bet, I don't know what it would be per day, but it's got to be well up in the hundreds and hundreds of people, maybe thousands. I don't know. It's, it's literally, there's so many people on the golf course on Saturdays and Sundays. It, it's, it's really nice to see people out sitting under trees with blankets, having picnics, just really enjoying the open space in the open area. There's got to be some way to play golf and do that at the same time. I don't have the answers, but to have some sort of unity or inclusion in, in the area um, seems to be a possible way to bridge this, this difference of opinions in, in our community. I, I, I don't know, but that's, that's kind of where I stand on that. I, I, I don't, 
I just don't think I would enjoy my community as much if it was open. I, I, th- I think it's, I think the, the homeowners enjoy it. Even the pre the homeowners who are here now, who used to be members at the golf course, who I deal with, with on the HOA, some, at least the ones I, at least the ones I deal with clearly enjoy the course now at least as much, if not more than it was when it was open, because they're out there doing things all the time and that they couldn't do otherwise. Okay. Um, so I don't know. I'm just trying to think of some common ground where we could have our cake and eat it too, sort of thing. Let me continue through. They show different examples like San Geronimo, Geronimo California, where an 18 hole course closes. And they're going to go through all these things. And they talk about them closing and all the different things they're doing. Wildlife is bouncing back and, you know, removal of the golf course is the solution to everything. Basically is what they're saying. All these, all these examples, right? Where we remove the golf course and wildlife's coming back and, and bobcats are roaming the area now. And it's just so much better. Da, 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 da. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that there must be some sort of way to have what they want and be able to, to recreate in the, in the uh, manner that we want as well as being golf. Okay. Because they're getting this press and they're saying, oh, it's, it's great because the golf course is gone now. And when golf courses leave, the economy leaves. Yes, there is a disadvantage to having a golf course. There's a disadvantage to putting in anything. I mean, there, if you're going to take something away from nature, it's, it's, it's not going to be natural anymore. But, but to have the golf course there, talk about the number of jobs it creates. Talk about the number of, of you know, the economy. Like I said, restaurants and hotels and all the, all the peripheral businesses that come into town because the course is there. Is, is tremendous for our economy. Um, we just need to figure out some way to do that um, in a way that includes the, the community and has an extremely low impact. We need to follow BMPs, basically, is what I'm saying. Okay, and if you're not, here's a perfect example where, um, where is the, let's see if I can get back on here. Here's a perfect example we're talking about, you know, if we're not including them, if you're not, you know, you, you, you're going, we're going to end up in situations like this, where the, the, the closure of golf courses is seen as a, as a benefit in every case. Again, I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not saying the closure of my golf course was a benefit. I'm just saying, I think I like it like this. And, I th- and it, if there was a way to have golf and what I have at the same time, then that's a win-win for everybody. And I don't have the answer how to do that, but, uh, I, I just, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm fearful that if we don't have some sort of open mindedness to, to figuring out how can we, you know, do our, have our golf, increase the economy, you know, in, increase jobs, do all these things while at the same time being aware of the uh, impact that we have if we fail to follow BNPs. I, I think that would be an, an appropriate approach. Anyway, so they show Ocean Meadows, California, and Rancho Canada, 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 California. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Anyway, it's just the same thing over and over and over. They show these different golf courses and they talk about how good it is that golf is gone. And uh, what I'm saying is, I'm not convinced that that's true, especially when you start off, you know, an article um, with at least minimally um, reasonable <laughs> opinions about it. Good grief, you know pesticides are horrible and you know fertilizer is horrible and native species are the way to go and it's it's you know it's silly it's 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 a fear-mongering sort of mentality and um we can we can do better than that guys i mean we can you know we can have 
we we know how to manage things properly it's when we when we choose to not do that choose to not follow labels choose to to not follow bmps is when things um begin to you know unfortunately increase our our potential impact on on unintended you know organisms and consequences there thereafter so let's let's do our best to follow bmps include people in in, in our decision making process even people that disagree with us to have people when we're, when we're having board meetings and council meetings about you know whether it's golf course design or architecture or there's stuff going on right now in Alachua, florida about new golfers include them everybody on both sides so we have all an input and invested interest in in the development and the outcome because even though you have hardcore environment environmentalists they have they need jobs too we need job you know so to to just simply you across the board, wipe out everything and turn it back to nature. I don't think that's what they want because the economic consequences are severe. So I guess, you know, let's, let's, let's work together and see if we can figure out a way through this that we both have uh, what we want. Maybe not everything we want all the time, but we, we, we include both parties on in, in these uh, discussions so that we, uh, we're aware of the other person's perspective and, and, and point of view. And we do our best to address that and follow, you know, by following best management practices and so forth. Okay, that's it on that article. Sorry, I just saw that the other day and I was like, eh, this seems a little bit far-fetched to just ignore that. I don't want to ignore that. Um, so Growing the Grass says in the chat, we, we have a small course in our town, but that's exactly what you're speaking out, speaking out about, I think. They actually had a spooky walk there this weekend for the town. Exactly. You know, now... Um, you know, to have opportunities like this, like before, right when COVID hit, COVID hit, what, March, February, March, my wife and I had, our course was closed. Uh, so, and this was 2020. So my wife and I had gone to the HOA and said, why don't we have an open Easter egg hunt on one of the fairways? We know what we want to do. We know how to do it. We just need permission to do it. And they were like, great, sounds great. And we were going to have like the two, two to four year old kids come out and the first thing in the morning, like eight o'clock. They come out and they do the race on the fairway and then the four to six and seven or whatever. We're going to have age groups kind of go out and just create and foster an environment of inclusion and uh, and community on this fairway. Now, there's no reason why an open golf course can't do that same thing. OK, they, they got to close the course for that for those rounds for that morning. But you can still charge for the for the for the people coming in five bucks per person or something or whatever the case is. You could justify it one way or the other. And I know there's insurance. I get all this stuff you got to do. But the consequences of not including them are what we just talked about. You know, that, uh, you know, the people who aren't included sometimes start pointing the finger. And sometimes they have a case to be made. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> now, if there's one thing that really, um, I don't know annoys me if you want to call it that is people on twitter and youtube and whatever else holding up cup, cup cutter plugs of their turf grass and you know soil sample profilers of their turf grass and saying look at all these roots i have i have great roots this product i put out did this that is um to me comical because i know how hard it is to actually show differences in roots it's not easy, but it's also doubly comical to me because just because you applied A and the result was B doesn't mean that A caused B. 
Okay, we talked about the rooster. By the way, I keep I, I go I watched a couple of my previous uh, uh, programs, and I've realized that sometimes I misspeak, and I don't even realize it when I'm speaking. I apologize for that. So if you hear something odd, just reach out to me. It's like, did you mean to say that? And I was like, I didn't mean to say like I said the crow, and I meant to say the rooster. I didn't even realize that when I was speaking. But anyway, it's the same analogy as the rooster. When the rooster crows, the sun comes up. Therefore, the rooster causes the sun to come up. Of course, we know that's that's ridiculous, but. This, we, for some reason, we don't make that same uh, connection when we're talking about turf. Okay, and the part, and I have a good the, uh, good example. Is when I was in sport turf down in Miami, I managed the Western uh, uh, Parks and managed Miami Lakes Parks, and I had a um, I had a spray tech that used to work on a golf course, and he swore up and down that this bag. I'll leave the na- company name out of it. This bag of fertilizer from this company would remove goose grass from St. Augustine grass, which if you know anything about St. Augustine grass, it's not easy to do that. And I told him, I was like, there's nothing in this fertilizer bag. There's no, there's no herbicide in the bag. No, it'll do it. It'll do it. I swear it'll do it. Blah, blah, blah. I did it before I saw it and blah, blah, blah. And he kept hounding me so much that I ended up buying one bag of fertilizer from this company just to show him that it wouldn't do anything. But... What I also did was I told the salesman, <clears throat> as I, when I bought the bag, I put it down and the spray tech, there was so many goose grass things there and there's so much St. Augustine grass there and I put it out and I was like, you're going to see the same number of this, the goose grass isn't going to go anywhere, but you're probably going to see the turf grass grow a little bit higher and hide it probably is what you're going to see. You're not going to see the goose grass go away. And we put it out. Sure enough, the turf grass started growing and it gave the appearance that there was less goose grass there, but the goose grass was still there. It was just below the canopy because the green canopy had grown up and it got a little denser. But I told the salesman, Hey, I put that fertilizer out and uh, it looked like it removed the goose grass. He's like, Oh, great. That's that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> he, didn't, he, didn't, he knows it doesn't do anything, but he still went along with me. The point is, is that I knew that applying that product wasn't going to do anything to the goose grass other than help it grow. Okay, it's not going to remove it. But people sometimes get convinced that you, you did this and that happened, therefore that caused it. And that's not the case. You, and you can't always say that. Okay, you can't always, um, in fact, it's more times than not better off to, to assume that it didn't cause that. You got to, you know, you have to prove it. You know, you have to, we're not, you know, I'll get into this at some other time, but we're not in the, sci- the field of science to prove our hypotheses, to prove our theories are true. There's no theory that can be proven true, right? Theory of gravity can't be proven to be 100% true. So the theory of any theory in turf grass can't be proven 100% true at all times. The best we can do is to, on any of our theories, the theory is, the best it can be is that it just hasn't been, it's, it's, it's withstood refutation up to this point. It's the theory, it's the theory that has best withstood refutation but you can't say it's a hundred percent and then that's the whole Karl popper you know um falsification you know line of of scientific philosophy so anyway i'm digressing quite a bit here the whole point is is that when you're holding up a thing of roots <laughs> and you say well this caused this or whatever you know you don't know if it caused that and I know how long, how hard it takes to actually measure roots and see differences in roots. And it's very likely that it didn't cause that. It didn't, 
the, the difference between what you did and what you were doing is probably negligible. Okay. So this, this article today, 50 minutes in, I'm just not getting to it. Sorry about this. I told you it was going to be a long day today. Um, this article today is about roots and I have a whole folder full of root papers I'm going to get to, but this one was on cool season fertility in fall. So the, the paper is the response of three Kentucky bluegrass cultivars to sprayable nitrogen fertilizer programs by more Christians and Agnew. These are all authors you, you probably know. It was published in 1996 in <clears throat> Crop Science. So this is our top tier journal or one of our top tier journals. So we've been talking about um, fall fertility and cool season grasses. This is also in that line, same line of uh, same topic, but it's cool season. I mean, but it's a liquid. We're applying this to the foliage. Okay. And he talks about some of the uh, ongoings of different cultivars and so forth in the, in the introduction. I've widened this all out to kind of keep me on track. As you can see, I'm 50 minutes in and I'm just not starting. So uh, what I'm going to talk about just briefly in the introduction is the types of nitrogen that he used and so forth and what, what it is. The methylene urea, in this case, they called it, used to call it fluff, contains 3.6% water insoluble nitrogen, which gives them material slow release characteristics. So a very small portion of this uh, methylene urea was water insoluble. Methylene urea nitrogen release is dependent upon microbial action. Okay, da da da. Uh, methyl, methylol urea formalene, as, as the brand name, contains no water insoluble nitrogen, but has a lower salt index than urea. So you're talking about using a methylene urea that had a little bit of water insoluble nitrogen, a product called formalene, which is maybe something like sort of like coron, it's just 100% liquid. Um, well, that's not like coron because coron does have slow release, but of 100% soluble liquid product that has no water insoluble um, urea, but it's less burn potential than urea. And then the um, urea form, which is produced as a granular product. It's even now, I think it's the, the brand name still called powder blue. It's a 3800 and it has 27% water insoluble nitrogen. Okay. Uh, at that time, this was in, what was this? 96. So 25 years prior to been used. These all had been used very regularly has very low burn potential. Several, uh, field studies have been conducted to identify the product. Okay. So basically they're using powder blue, which is, it looks just like, um, the normal granular product. It is a granular product. It's not a soluble. It stays suspended, but it'll still go through your screens and, uh, in your spray spray equipment, but it's a very, very fine powder versus urea versus a methylene urea that's a very s small amount of water insoluble versus a, a, a liquid or soluble one like urea but has low burn potential. So those are the nitrogen sources he was looking at. So the objectives, oops, the objectives was of this project was to investigate the response of Majestic, Vantage, and Park Kentucky Bluegrass. So he has three different um, cultivars of Kentucky Bluegrass to urea, urea form, methylene urea, and methylol urea applied as liquid sprays in heavy spring, balanced, or late fall in programs. So we have three cultivars. We have um, what four or five end sources, and we have three application dates or programs. Okay. I thought he had a table in here where... Um, uh, I thought he had a table in here. We talked about the dates and rates and stuff, but I guess I'll discuss it. Um, hey, Polo, how are you? Mitch Bird says I um, on the previous topic, it can it can and should be in the way that both sides can be happy. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, 
there's been a couple people. I don't know what happens on YouTube. I don't know the whole system. <coughs> but sometimes I get an email from somebody. Or the email sends it to me from YouTube. It says so-and-so commented. And, and I see the comment on my email. And I go, okay. And I hit reply. And then I go there and it's not there in YouTube. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. But so for, I don't mean to call anybody. But if, whether it, if you've sent me something as a comment and it's not showing up on the on the video comments it's not because i've removed it or deleted it or i don't i don't i haven't done anything intentionally to to omit your comment um but sometimes i get it i know it's on an email but then i go there and it's not there so i don't mean to ignore anybody i guess is my point it's not, you know i know there's been some people show up here that i that i didn't realize until later and i didn't mean to ignore you um Anyway, someone maybe can help me explain how YouTube shows me that there was a comment, but then when I go there, there's no comment. Okay, I digress again. Sorry. Now you know I have all this stuff whited out <laughs> because I get lost in my conversation. I apologize. Okay, so materials and methods. These three cultivars of Kentucky bluegrass were seeded in randomized complete block design blah, 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 at Iowa State University uh, horticulture. So they're in Iowa, in Ames, Iowa in 1984. The soil in this test site was blah, 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 with a pH of 7.8. I don't know the extractants on this, so you can't do anything about these values. The phosphorus value was 13 parts per million. The potassium was 70 parts per million. And the organic matter was 3.2% organic matter. And I don't know what the extractant was. So you can't say 13 parts per million phosphorus. That's kind of low. You probably should apply phosphorus. Maybe it is low. I don't know because I don't, I don't know what the extractant was. I have no clue. And an initial application of the homogenous fertilizer that contains uh, two, three, almost three pounds of nitrogen, a little bit more than a pound of P, and a little bit more than two pounds of K was applied to the entire area at a rate of oh, what? Oh, the fertilizer contained that. No, that they, they, was applied to the entire area at a rate of oh wow. Oh, that's grams per. Oh man, they, sooner sooner or later, I'm going to get to the point where I'm getting rid of this R factor here. This R unit is driving me insane. So this would be one pound in. Okay, 400. And then even change the, oh, good Lord. Change it to grams, for Christ's sake. So I'm pretty sure that's one pound. 4.88 is going to be one pound in. 4.88 grams per, per R. Gee, many Christmas. Okay, so they applied it at one pound of in to that area. But it contained phosphorus and potassium. In the fall of 1984, one pound of K was applied to the plots. An additional two pounds of K was applied to all plots at the beginning of each season. So they applied potassium. Apparently, they thought this 70 parts per million was low. I don't know why they applied that potassium, but they did. Okay, each subplot received a total of... Uh, then they went back to kilograms. Jesus. So they went to... For two, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that that's someone's gonna have to help me on this. One point nine kilograms per R. I want to say that's four pounds. Jesus, I want to say that's four pounds of N. Thank God for modern scientific standards, because <laughs> kilograms per hectare, kilograms per oh, anyway. I want to say they applied it. So they applied everything at four pounds of N from urea, urea for urea form, methylene urea or methylol urea applied in heavy spring balanced or late fall program beginning in spring 1985. Okay. So here we're going to explain the programs. Now the heavy spring program included nitrogen applications 
of Jesus in heaven. I'm going to say a half a pound of N in April. A pound and a half in May and then a pound in both August and September. I don't know why they would call it the heavy spring. Oh, thanks, Poa. So four pounds. Okay, so I was right. 1.9 kilograms is okay. Four pounds. Thanks. You got to check me on this stuff. The balance program included four one-pound applications in each of the months. <clears throat> in each of the months of April, May, June, August. So they applied one pound in April, one pound in May, one pound in August, and one pound in September as the balanced one. The late fall program included in applications of a half a pound in April, three quarters of a pound in both May and August, and then a pound in September and November. So they applied a pound. The heavy fall was a pound in September and a pound in November. All right. And the, okay, so the heavy spring one was this was this half a pound in April and a pound and a half in May. So they're just applying more in fall or versus more in the spring versus an equal distribution of the nitrogen throughout the season. And one's the heavy spring, one's the balance, and one's the late the, the heavy fall. And they applied this with a CO2 backpack sprayer. All right, gee, me Christmas. That was not easy. Okay, data collected included, I'm going to come back to these tables. Data collected included visual quality, clipping yield, thatch depth, shoot density, and root weight. Visual quality was evaluated on a monthly basis based upon a 9 to 1 scale where 9 was best, 1 was dead, and 6 is lowest acceptable rating. So in this, pro, in this uh, study, anything 6 or greater is acceptable. Anything less than 6 is unacceptable. Shoot density was measured by counting the mean number of tillers. Thatch depth was measured by taking three 10 centimeter diameter cores and they measured the depth. Uh, so that's what that's the setup. Okay. Now let's go back to the tables. So we're in Ames, Iowa. We have three cultivars of Kentucky bluegrass. We have four nitrogen sources. We have three application regimes. We're measuring visual quality, clipping yield, density thatch, and all this stuff and roots. <clears throat> let's look at the visual quality first, because as you probably know by now, this is what I'm most interested in. <clears throat> if I can get this on screen without um, completely changing it up. Yeah, I can't. I'll back it up. Sorry, guys. Okay. So this table on the left, if you're listening you're not, and you're not watching, the table on the left is the mean visual quality rating and clipping yield of the three Kentucky bluegrass cultivars during the three-year study. Now, I've the cultivar differences, there's a couple differences in cultivars. I'm not going to really talk much about cultivar differences at all. Cultivar, you can talk about that. You can look at that if you want to. What I'm interested in is the fertilizer form and the, the manner in which it was applied. Did that differ? And what we're going to um, show and see here is the urea, the, f the form of nitrogen. Remember, all these nitrogen forms were applied at all the programs. Okay, so the, but the form of urea was acceptable in 1986, it was acceptable in 1987, and it was acceptable in 1988. Okay, <laughs> can't get more straightforward than that. When you switch to urea form, it was acceptable in 1986, 1987, but not acceptable in 1988. The, the methylene urea and methanol, all these were acceptable in 1986. All these are acceptable in 1987, but you'll see that the methyl urea was not acceptable. So the only two that were acceptable in every year were the methylene urea and the urea. 
Okay, so why do I say that? <clears throat> this is an example, as we've talked about before, of wanting or having a desire or an intent to enhance your program by switching from urea, which is, let's just, let's, we can discuss this if you want to, but let's just assume urea is the least expensive nitrogen source available for turf grasses. I mean, someone can come up with some strange scenario where it's not, but let's just assume that that's true. Anytime you want to move away from urea, you must have a good reason to do so. Otherwise, you're going to go end up going down roads with flawed logic and end up costing yourself money, probably, okay, that you didn't need to. So if your intent is to, for example, reduce burn potential, which is the case, what, what they had one in, in here, was it methylol? I can't remember which one it was had a reduced burn potential compared to urea. Well, we didn't see that because the urea was acceptable and was at the highest level of acceptable among all treatments in all years. There was nothing greater than urea and urea was always acceptable. If your intent is to have some sort of slow release, so you're going to include methylene urea. Okay, you're going to have a slow release. This is a spray, so it's a little different, but let's say uh, you include methylene urea so you have a little bit prolonged response to that application so you're going to pay more for that than you would for urea but we didn't see any benefit you still saw urea and methylene urea acceptable urea is a little higher in 1986 but you still saw essentially the urea well not essentially the urea was always as good or better than every other form of nitrogen in this study but you're anytime you switch you're going to pay more for it which i don't mind but you need to get more for it, okay? Not just pay more for it. You need to get something in return for that expense. And here's another example where you're not, this, this study did not show any evidence that spending more money on a slow-release nitrogen source resulted in, a, in this case, an increase in visual quality above that of urea, okay? So that's that. Now, Let's go to the nitrogen programs how when how and the manner in which the nitrogen was applied we have the heavy spring was a seven seven six when it goes to uh 86 87 88 so it was always acceptable when the nitrogen was applied in heavy spring when it was a balanced one pound each month we saw acceptable first year acceptable the second year not acceptable the third year we're going to talk about the third year in a second when it come to late fall we saw acceptable first year acceptable second year not acceptable the third year so in this case, they had acceptable turf grass from urea. All, all, it was always acceptable from urea, and it was always acceptable when it was applied heavily in the spring. Now we're, now we're not saying we're avoiding other nitrogen applications. Remember, the program didn't, was not just in the spring, right? It was just a little bit more heavy in the spring than it was in the other parts of the year. But it was always acceptable, and it was... It was um, oftentimes unacceptable in the last year from other nitrogen sources and from the late fall application of nitrogen or from the balanced application of nitrogen. Okay. Let's see. Did I have the... Oh, yeah. So the reason that they postulate this actually occurred in the last year where you saw differences that you did not see in the first two years was up here in the table one temperature and rainfall. Okay. The number of days above 30 degrees the first year was only 18. 
1987, it was 48. And in 1988, it was 65. So it was actually warmer and it was actually drier. You see the rainfall being much less in 1988. So the rainfalls went down each year and the temperature went up each year. So, and we're seeing urea have a superior turf quality than the other nitrogen sources in each year. And in, particularly in the last year, when many of the other nitrogen sources resulted in unacceptable turf grass, urea did not. And it's in cases where it's hot and dry. So they postulate later on that this is, may have been a result of the, the slow release nitrogen sources um, not having sufficient moisture to kind of, you know, microbe activity to break it down and everything else. Whereas the urea, all you need is urease, which is ubiquitous and, um, and some moisture and you're good. Okay. <laughs> my, Mitch, my, my math is hurting my head. Comment. I, I just can't seem to function with this R unit. And sometimes they go from grams to kilograms and it's, it's just driving me nuts, but I'll get uh, sooner or later. I'm going to get out of there. Then the, all the last 30 years, it's very rare to have that unit. It's almost always kilograms per hectare. Okay. Effective in-source in programs on shoot density and thatch accumulation. Now there's going to, I have a whole folder on thatch because for thatch is uh, <laughs> very heavily studied. It's been very well studied. But I notice a lot of grifters on YouTube and on uh, Twitter lo love talking about their products and how they'll chemically reduce thatch. There are some products that clearly show an impact on thatch reduction. Um, but um, it's, it's only one or two um, active ingredients, if you want to call it that, that will, that will have an impact on thatch reduction. So I included that on this. I'm, I'm going to go into thatch heavily in the future, but in this particular study, we do not see any impact from the various nitrogen sources. I'm right here on thatch on any year. In other words, thatch development was the same. Uh, nitrogen sources had no impact. The nitrogen program, whether it was applied in the fall, whether it was balanced or was applied more heavily in the spring, had no impact. There was no impact on thatch based upon how you applied the nitrogen. Density had no impact. There was a little bit of impact on the density from the nitrogen source here. The urea had a little bit more density than, wait a second, LSD is 46. Well, it, it says, it says there's a, there's a difference here with this nine, but according to what, unless I'm missing something. This would, this would indicate, this 9 LSD would indicate that none of these differ. I don't know why they have a 9 there. Well, anyway, I was going to say urea resulted in a, a more dense turf grass, but it doesn't look like it is based on the LSD. Anyway, so there's really no, there, the point was about the thatch. There's no differences in thatch. The nitrogen source and the nitrogen application dates had no impact on thatch. Uh, I'm going to keep going. I'm probably just going to go through the tables instead of just reading through this stuff. So this table right here is the, uh, the next table is table four, the effect of nitrogen source and nitrogen program on root organic matter production of these cultivars in the spring. So they measured roots in the spring and then the next table is the measured roots in the fall. So the, the impact of roots, the impact of these nitrogen sources and nitrogen application regimes on root mass in the spring. And what I wanted to point out is the fertilizer, everything that's green, there's no difference. 
So whether it came from urea, urea form, methylene urea, or methylol urea, <clears throat> the nitrogen source had no never had an impact on uh, the the milligrams of roots. They they measured the roots in milligrams. Okay, of root matter per one hundred cc's. Okay, <clears throat> so whether however whatever form they applied, the root mass was always the same. When you come to the, the manner in which it was applied, there are a few differences, but the majority of the time there's no differences, especially when you get deeper into the profile. When you get deeper into the profile, the 10 to, 10 to 20 centimeters, you don't see any differences in the depths, the mass that exists at those depths. The only difference you really see are occasionally at the, at the upper area, the upper area, the upper, you know, 10 centimeters, <clears throat> four or five inches. You do see occasionally a little bit of difference, but it's not always consistent. For example, in the top top five centimeters, you see the late fall result in greater root mass than uh, the balanced. Okay, this might even be different from the heavy spring. So the late fall is resulting in greater root mass, but in the five to ten centimeter range, you don't see that. You see the balance resulting in more uh, root mass than the late fall. So it's inconsistent based upon the depth. When you in the spring that was in the spring 1986 in the spring 1987 you do see again more root mass from that late fall application than you do in this case from the heavy spring application okay and then again at the five to ten centimeter you see a little bit of difference between the late fall and the spring so why is this occurring to and then you see this the total root the only time the total roots in the spring differed was in the second year you don't see any total right here you don't see any total root differences but here you do you do see the total roots in 1987 uh, be greater from the late fall application when it was measured in the spring that late fall application resulted in greater roots than the, the heavy spring why is that well these authors postulate that the application of this heavy spring fertilizer enhances top growth and in increases top growth in the spring at the expense of roots so you're growing a lot more top growth and in order to do that and metabolize that nitrogen, you're pulling carbohydrates from the roots to metabolize that nitrogen and put on leaf tissue in the spring. Whereas in the fall, you don't have that growth. You don't have that upper growth. Like we've gone over in many papers before you see the color change, but the growth doesn't change. So the nitrogen might still be metabolized and stored in the roots in the, in these uh, late fall applications greater than in the spring applications. <clears throat> However, what this study doesn't have is a control where nothing was applied. Biologically, it's, it's horticulturally, it's irrelevant to not apply it. I mean, so they didn't do it. But in other words, the well, one reason I say that is because the turf grass is going to naturally do that anyway. The turf grass in the, in the in a paper, um, I can't remember Hansen and something Hansen and uh, Juska. I think it's Hansen and just Juska paper and. Um, I think it was 1984. I can't remember now, but where that shows that they had a non-treated uh, plot, and it does show that the, the root mass increases as you move into the winter and continue into the winter. The root mass continues to increase even if you don't apply anything. So in this case, when we're applying something, we're sort of exacerbating that effect. Where the roots um, in this particular paper, the roots increased from that late fall application, and when you apply the nitrogen in the spring, it'll it'll tend to reduce that root mass as as the turf grass grows. Okay, that's sort of the take-home message from that. Now, in the next table, it's a very exact same table, except for now we're measuring it in the fall. Okay, so we're measuring root mass in the fall. And again, 
when you look at the nitrogen form, the urea, uriform, methylene urea, and methylol urea, you don't see any differences except right here. There's a little bit of a difference here in the zero to five centimeters in the fall of 1988. And um, the, the form of fertilizer that resulted in the greatest root mass was the methylol urea. And the least was for the methylene urea. But the urea still resulted in the quote, uh, let's see, is that equivalent? Maybe not. Might be a slightly difference between the urea might have a slightly slight reduction compared to the methylol urea. But that's one data point in one year. Every other data point, the nitrogen source had no effect on roots. Okay. So this is critical to understand. Uh, occasionally you will see differences. That's what I've said before. Occasionally you'll see this or you'll see that. But what does the overarching, <clears throat> overwhelming amount of information say that? The, the information says that it's unlikely that nitrogen source in this study with these four nitrogen sources that you're going to see any differences in root mass. And but the reason it's critical is because if a if a marketing company or a salesman just pulled that out out of all of these data points, they just there's how many they did two years, one in the spring, one in the fall <clears throat> over three years. So they did six roots the spring and fall of every year, and only one showed a difference from nitrogen source. And they just pulled that one out and showed it to you on a marketing sheet. It might be convincing, right? You need to be aware of that or, or else you can be deceived. Okay. It's, this, this happens all the time, all the time in, in turf grass management. You see Marketing sheets after marketing sheets. The University of X said found this, and University of Y found that. But you don't know how many other times they ran the study and found nothing. So that's that's critical. We're going to get into all that in the future. We're going to have months and months of exactly how to critically what the 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 name of these you know, critical thinking processes are, and, and give examples of how. You can use this to your advantage and how, why it's important that you're aware of that this exists. You know, you know, <laughs> I've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times, even with my own research. They pulled out one data point. They cherry picked one data point and they used that to convince people to, to buy their product. I'm not saying it wouldn't work. I'm just saying that the majority of time it didn't work. That's the one time it did. So be careful with that stuff. Uh, the nitrogen program, the manner in which it was applied to heavy spring balance in late fall. This is in the fall. Okay, so we're measuring roots in the fall now. Okay. The majority of time, we don't see anything happen. Okay. Then when you applied it in the fall or late spring or balance, you see nothing. All the greens are where you, oops, this one here is wrong. This one here is a, is a difference. I mis, miscolored that one. Um, so we see three times when it there was a difference at the various depths and all the rest of them you didn't. You only see one total. The, in other words, the total for that for that year where there was a difference where the late fall resulted in a greater root mass than either the balanced or the heavy. But the other two years, the totals were equivalent. There was no differences between them. Okay. So the title of this was, you know, you don't get roots and you don't get roots and no one gets roots. There are occasions where nitrogen sources and the application dates or timings of the nitrogen sources may have an influence on the mass of roots or you know i've shown three two or three occasions but the vast majority of times that we've shown in this paper uh the nitrogen source and the manner and the dates in which it apply or they are applied have very little impact if any impact on the mass of roots okay for kentucky these three kentucky bluegrass cultivars okay 
that's kind of the take home message. I'm going to read this last part here on green. These are the conclusions and so forth. Now they did have the averages. They took instead of the total, they took the averages of all of those different depths and they did show some differences between the nitrogen sources and the heavy spring late balance and late fall. And they showed here that the in the in the vantage cultivar there there was the, 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 I don't know by the way I don't know how they come up with one LSD for three different cultivars. I don't understand unless unless there was no interaction, and if there was no interaction, then you you don't need to show three different cultivars. But he's showing three different cultivars. So if you're going to do that, if you I don't know if there was interaction, I have to go back and look. But if there was no interaction, then you can't break it out by cultivar because then the the LSD wouldn't be appropriate for every every. It's 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 odd. I'll just say that. It's, I don't know why they have one LSD here, 2.1 millimeters on every single cult. You should have an LSD for each cultivar, regardless of the interaction effect, Rego whatever. Anyway, the late fall actually for Vantage ended up having a reduction in the average root mass uh, compared to the balanced. The balanced ended up having an increased root mass compared to the heavy spring. And then here at the majestic cultivar, it ended up having an increased root mass at the late fall compared to the heavy spring. So you can see, based upon the cultivar that you you have, the impact of the application on the average roots, not the total. Remember, the total is very little impact ever, but the average throughout the entire year of all the depths, um, the uh, differences in that is cultivar specific. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to read through the green, and then we'll close this thing down. The greater quality ratings and clipping yields are in part due to the application of nitrogen in Kentucky bluegrass at the time that would stimulate shoot growth rather than root growth. That's being the spring, right? Spring fertilization may stimulate shoot growth at the expense of root growth. We just talked about that, and here's some papers. Uh, spring fertilization can cause plants to channel plant carbohydrates. I remember, I think it was Randy was saying, as we talked about carbohydrates the other day. So spring fertilization can cause plants to channel plant carbohydrates from roots to shoots, thereby reducing root elongation and exposing the plant to potential injury from high temperature stress. So what he's saying here is, is real simple. Is what I said earlier, applying nitrogen in the spring at a time when the plant isn't, is, is wanting to grow and it has the ability to put on leaf tissue. In order to do that, he pulls it from the roots. And he's they're postulating or claiming that this could uh, enhance the potential injury from high temperature stress going into the summer. Uh, I would argue that a little bit of nitrogen to keep it healthy is probably not going to cause any high temperature stress. They didn't show that in, in this paper, but I think a weak plant going into the summer is probably more prone than a healthy plant that has a little bit of healthy tissue above ground and a little bit of healthy tissue below ground than, than just not applying anything and letting the roots grow. Um, but, you know, that's my opinion. Fall fertilization has been shown to promote early spring green up root growth, carbohydrate storage, and thatch development. And here's all the papers he talked about. We've actually talked about, I don't know if we talked about the Koski Street paper, but the Werner 98 paper we did, or 88 paper we did. The rooting data taken in both the spring and fall of 1987 show the heavy spring program producing the least total roots. Okay, so apply it a lot in the spring, you're going to reduce the roots more than likely. Okay, the late fall program stimulated greater root mass at the upper five centimeters in the spring of 86 and the, and the spring and fall of 87. Okay, so late fall, you get a little bit more roots in the, t in the upper uh, two inches, three inches, something like that. Total root growth from the late fall program was 8 to 12% greater 
Then from heavy spring and balance programs in the spring and fall 87, late fall programs produce greater total root mass for these two Vantage and Majestic cultivars. And the balance program resulted in greater root. So there's differences between those cultivars is what I said just a minute ago. The cultivars that performed well. And so this is, I just and I just put this in here. I almost whited this out, but I put this in here because we had a discussion with, I think it was uh, Dr. Braun a couple of weeks ago about the differences in cultivars and the differences in genetics. And I will say this, besides water, besides buying a, a water timer on Amazon for 15 bucks, one of the best things you can do is get good genetics. Okay. It's not the same as it was in the seventies and eighties guys. Okay. We have invested a lot of money developing better turf grasses and it really does show. Okay. And this, 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 this was written in 1996, but let me read it to you. The cultivars that performed well in low maintenance studies tended to do poorly in high maintenance trials, whereas cultivars that performed well in high maintenance trials generally performed poorly under low maintenance conditions. So genetics matter. It, re it really does. There's, I know you see it all the time now where you see, you know, uh, cultivars coming out of Oklahoma State. Cultivars coming out of Texas and all these things are Bermuda grasses and all these things. But uh, uh, universities like Rutgers have have put in decades of work in developing better seeded varieties of you know bluegrasses and fescues and all these things, and it really does matter. So besides getting managing your water, which I would argue is the most important thing in turfgrass management, what's what's slowly well not slowly but it's I'm hoping it becomes more uh, rapid is the the understanding of the value of good genetics if you can go to a to a lawn that has kentucky 31 in it and apply the same program as a lawn that i just seeded out here that has all the newer varieties in it and you're gonna have two wildly different responses and wildly different qualities of these these lawns based upon nothing other than just the genetics of the of the plant itself okay so please be mindful of that this study also indicated that late fall applications of urea stimulated root growth and hastened spring green up uh, Warner 88, however, stated that late fall applications of urea may not eliminate the need for spring nitrogen applications, but can allow for the reduction in the amount that needs to be applied. This <clears throat> proved to be true on both high and low maintenance cultivars in this study. So I'm saying that all that to say this is that, <clears throat> oops, um, did I click the wrong button here? Okay, I'm still alive. Hit the wrong button. Sorry. Um, if you're going to go out, in the fall, when I say fall, I mean November, December. And I'm going to say Kentucky or North Ohio and, you know, all these places that are much colder. If you're going to do that, most of the research we've been showing, including this, is, is showing that you probably still have to go out in the spring and put out a little bit of soluble nitrogen to get, to get the turf to kind of get going in the spring. Okay. You're going to have to do that anyway. <clears throat> so now knowing that September and October applications will generally get you the growth and get you the color you want. You probably have to go out in the spring anyway. November will get you the color you want with not, not much growth. December will get you color, but not much growth. You're going to have to go out in the spring anyway. But the November and December application, which is what we just talked about last week with the, the potential uh, offsite movement, environmental risk, is much greater in those November and December um, timeframes. It's much greater than it is in September and October. So the case... This is, like I said, this is epistemology. We're, learn we're studying knowledge. The case can be made. You can have a justified reason to 
minimize or completely eliminate these very late fall or early winter applications of soluble nitrogen because you're going to have to go out in the spring anyway. You're going to have to go out and apply a little bit of nitrogen in the spring one way or the other. But eliminating the November-December application will greatly reduce environmental risk and, I guess, reduce your cost if you can look at it that way. Okay. I guess you, you could argue it the other way. You could say you reduce your revenue because you're not charging for that. But you can put out maybe something else at that time frame that, that is more useful to your clientele than, than this because you're going to have to do it again anyway in the spring is what this, at the end of this, conclu- and then this paper concluded. Okay, guys and gals. Um, so that's that on that paper. The rest of the week, tomorrow, 10 a.m., Thursday, 10 a.m., normal. On Wednesday night, we're going to have a guest author on Wednesday night at 9 p.m. And he's going to join us from the uh, a- annual scientific meetings. So he's he's so excited. <laughs> he's going to actually take a break from talking science at the meetings and, and join me to talk science to you all. So um, look for that on Wednesday night. Uh, tomorrow will be a, another another normal day. And then Wednesday we'll have an author. Thursday we'll have an author. We have four papers left. I added another paper for cool season grasses. I was hoping this would be my last week of cool season grasses in fall, but it is what it is. I keep finding papers. Um, so we'll have one more paper before we move on to the next topic. Other than that, if there's no more questions uh, or comments, I just thank for everybody showing. I see polos and I, I don't know if I've ever met you, Polo. I think the time I came on your show, um, I think you were unavailable. As I think I spoke with Cam and Rob at that time. Um, I would I would love an opportunity to, to, to say hello to you at some point, but I, I appreciate everybody for showing up. Um, I don't see anything else on here <clears throat> that I need to, to address. So with that, I'll see you guys uh, in 23 hours, 10 a.m. tomorrow morning. Have a great day.